Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining me for his second but certainly not final appearance on the podcast is Mr. Al Sedano. Welcome back, Al. Thank you. Glad to be back. I'm glad to have you back. And this time you've got a lot less to read than last time. Yeah, it was a little easier. 15 issues? After last time, that, that was cakewalk. Oh yeah, compared to 58? Yeah. For those listeners who haven't put the pieces together, Al was last with us when we looked at the Chris Claremont run on New Mutants. The whole run. Yep. And this week we are looking at story number 58 in the countdown, Avengers Kang Dynasty. So it's a 15-issue run, as we've already mentioned. It actually has sort of double numbering on the covers. This is the area in the early 2000s. It was part of Volume 3, Falling Heroes Reborn, where those issues were 41 to 55. And then they were double numbering it with a 456 to 470, as though it was continuously numbered. Yeah, but they still took issue 50 as it was issue 50. It was, yeah. Even on the covers, the second number is kind of grayed out a little bit. So it's mostly yeah. there because they had complaints that, oh, these are renumbering. I don't have that big continuous run. So it's like, okay, stick the other number back on there. Yeah, weren't they doing that for all the books I think that they brought back? I don't think they did for Thor. Or maybe they did, but I know they did for FF and Iron Man and Cap. Yeah, anyway, this story, the Kang Dynasty, is the last full story arc written by Kurt Busiek, who wrote the first 56 issues of this relaunch. So issue 56 is not included in this countdown, and issue 57 was when Jeff Johns took over. But Kurt Busiek wrote all of these issues. Pencilers included Alan Davis, Manuel Garcia, Kieran Dwyer, Ivan Rice, and Patrick Zercher. Inkers included Mark Farmer, Bob Layton, Rick Remender. Yes, that Rick Remender, who's now better known for writing. I did not realize that until I read these this time. Yeah, it's. I first heard that when he was uh, talking to John Centros on Word Balloon about how when he first broke in, it was as an anchor, and it was frustrating because then no one would even look at him as a writer. People <laughs> tend to get pigeonholed in their roles. Well, yeah, you just do this. Yeah. We also had Randy Emberlin and Scott Koblish as anchors. The only other job that was really done by one person throughout was colorist Tom Smith. Colored all 15 issues. Lettering was done primarily by Albert Deschain, but also by Richard Starkings, Jason Living, Seda Tamofonte, and others at Comic Craft. Yeah. Editor Tom Brevoort worked on every issue. Editor-in-Chief Joe Casada oversaw every issue in some degree. Associate er editors varied, Mark Sumerak being the one most commonly and frequently credited. I believe he was actually credited on all of them. And there were some issues with Jeff Youngquist credits and some with Andy Schmidt credits. Cover dates range from June 2001 to August 2002. Release dates ranged from April 5th, 2001 to June 26th, 2002. So it still is a long story. Like we said, 15 issues. It is. It Compared to most stories, it's long. Compared to stuff Al's recorded before, it's short. Compared to the Clone Saga, yeah. it's nothing. Well, yeah. But yeah, it still is 15 months. Or yeah. And well, actually, nowadays, if Marvel's doing it, it'd be about seven months. They'd be double shipping everything. Yeah, I think most of the Avengers books now are averaging something like 16 issues a year. Yeah. That's kind of and their some, target. And all new X-Men, too. Yeah, they're anywhere from 12 to 18 issues a year. And apparently the line-wide average is 16. Just because they've, I think it was Tom Brevoort on Word Balloon, who flat out said, you know, people are less likely to add a second title than they are to buy four extra issues of three titles they're already buying and enjoying. Yeah, that's true. So... And it works. It kind of keeps the product on the shelves and it keeps the line focused so you don't have as many ancillary titles that don't feel as important and aren't getting read. It's not like they don't have enough of those as it is. <laughs> well, they're down to one Deadpool series. I think at one point they're up to three or four. 
All right. But those are the technical details done. So now we'll drop in a promo spot for one of Al's podcasts, and we'll be back in a moment. All right. In February 2014, a new podcast dedicated to the Marvel Comics character, Adam Warlock, debuted. And the internet broke in half. Well, not really. Far from it, to be honest. But a few of you actually noticed, and we thank you for that. Over the course of 2014, we covered all of Adam's Silver Age adventures and have started on his Bronze Age solo series, as well as his current appearance in two Thanos specials. But it's time for a change. So I'm sad to announce that episode 20 will be the last episode of Resurrections and Adam Warlock Podcast. However, I am pleased to announce that in 2015, we will premiere the first episode, which we will call Episode 21, of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Yes, the show is continuing, but now with more Thanos. Each month we will have John M. Wilson on as we cover an issue of Warlock, and the other episode of the month, we will continue to have Brian Zeno on to cover Thanos' appearances, starting with Captain Marvel 25. So join us in 2015 for Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, now with 20% more Thanos. And we're back. So as we said, we are talking about the Kang Dynasty. And one of the things we like to talk about is any continuity-based significance of the story. And we're going through the plot synopsis, and I think it's best to do that at the same time. All right. When you've got Kurt Busiek on writing, it's a lot of the continuity role isn't so much creating new continuity as it is tying up loose ends and sort of resurrecting, if you will, past continuity. What? From the writer of Avengers Forever? Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Kurt Busiek. It's uh, Busiek, Mark Wade, and Tom Brevoort are the three professionals who are known for having encyclopedic knowledge of the continuity. To the point where, at conferences, they used to have stump so-and-so, ask them questions that they cannot answer. Yeah. Panels. And the conferences actually stopped doing that because it never happened. And it took the fun <laughs> out of it when they were essentially unstumpable. Well, yeah. Hey, someone's got to fill in for Mark Grimwald. Yep. And it might as well be Wade. Yep. And Brevoort, and yeah, as we said, Bushek was the other one. Anyway, so the, the inciting incident, I would say, in the plot, Kang is back, and he has probably the most elaborate plan he's ever had. Yeah, it, this is not just I'm attacking the Avengers and I'm doing some little plan. It's I'm going to war. Yeah. And he's actually earning the name Conqueror. He is. And it fixes what, to my mind, has always been the biggest issue with Kang you know, as a villain. I'm trying to figure out why, you know, even though he jumps around in time, the times that the Avengers see him are in the same sequence that the time Kang sees the Avengers. Right. If he thinks he could take the Avengers, why not, you know, hit them at the toughest Avengers he thinks he can handle, and if he fails, he gets a chance to learn from that experience and then go attack them earlier on. Yeah, or even just come in five minutes later. Like, we've never seen it. I don't, as far as we know, we've never had a Kang story where he fight, faces the Avengers. They beat him, and they're like, all right, we beat him. And then two seconds later, Kang, fully rested and fully rearmed, shows up again and goes, I'm back. Let's start over. Yep. And I like that there's even a line in here. One of the things that sets this one apart is Kang's son, Marcus, is sort of his protege. So we see more of Kang's thought process as he's teaching his protege and his, his successor. And his son, Marcus the Scarlet Centurion, throws out, well, why don't we just do this? Why don't we just 
come back a few seconds after we left, fully rested. Why don't we just go back to an earlier time and beat them then? And Kang says, no, time time is what we exist in. It's not a weapon. Yeah. It's a tool. Yeah, it's our canvas, I think he says exactly, but it's not our, yeah, like you said, it's not our weapon. Yeah, basically, Marcus Scarlet Centurion is there basically to be his Robin or Bucky. It's a sidekick, like they did in the mm-hmm. 40s when they brought in sidekicks. It's so the hero, it's someone to talk to and tell over the reader what he's doing instead of just having monologues or thought balloons. And it's the same thing here. He's like, Marcus says, why do we do this? This is why. Yeah, and it's nice because it makes Kang, he essentially fully acknowledges that, yeah, with this technology, he can be unbeatable, but that is dishonorable. In his mind, it's cheating. Yeah. And he is a man of honor. And he won't cheat, to, I mean, as, far as, he, as far as he believes it to be cheating. Yeah, he will lay out the ground rules. I mean, his ground rules may be, I can attack you anywhere, anytime, but you're not allowed to hit my home base. Yeah. You know, which is one of the rules he lays out in here. When the Avengers attack his home base, well, he fights back hard and really lays waste to a few areas. Yeah, when he does this war, he has all these army soldiers all over the world. And as long as they're just fighting the soldiers, he's fine with that. And even they beat them, fine with that. But as soon as you even make an attempt at hitting the home base, he starts nuking cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, again, it, it's it got a sense of honor. So you can see why Kang is the hero of his own story. Um, that's something that, as I said, it's not something I've gotten from the other Kang stories that I've read. Yeah, not many. Maybe Avengers Forever, a bit. Maybe I have to admit that has been in my to-read pile for a while, but I haven't actually read it yet. I bought the original issues as back issues. I've got the Marvel Digital Limited. I just, I haven't gotten around to it. I've been meaning to, to do that. And I really oh, yeah. I, I read that when it first came out. It's still one of my favorite Avengers stories. And yeah, Kang is definitely, and again, because it's Kurt Busiek writing it, very much more this version of Kang than other versions of Kangs we've seen before. Yeah, I, I believe it. And it's something, it's been near the top of my to-do pile. But I've got to be honest, the Avengers were never a huge draw for me. Just my own reading history, when I first got into superhero comics, it was all about X-Books and New Warriors. Well, I can go there. I mean, it was all X-Men and yeah, New Mutants for me in the beginning. But Yeah, and then when I got into comics later, when I first really started reading the Avengers, uh, it was for two reasons. One, I was really enjoying what Brian Michael Bendis had been doing on Ultimate Spider-Man and Daredevil. So when I first started reading the Avengers, it was following him into Avengers Disassembled and beyond. Oh, okay. And then the first time I read this was when I bought the Git Corp DVD ROMs, because that was just in a price per issue for the full color copies. Oh, yeah. I'm okay with reading the PDF files, in which case they are a bargain. Yeah, I started doing really picking up Avengers around early 90s, so it was around when Rage joined, so it was like 320-something. Okay. Through pretty much, for the most part, through shortly before Crossing, so like a little bit after... um. Galactic Storm. Okay. And then back again with uh, this this run, when Busiak and Perez took over. Okay. Yeah, and when I first read this, it was on those DVD-ROMs, because at one point, I'd heard so much about that Heroes Reborn and Heroes Return. Right? I'd heard about that era, I'd heard about the relaunch, and it seemed like, okay, I've got all these things on DVD-ROM, I've got the Iron Man DVD, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, Captain America. That seems like a good place to start to get caught up on modern continuity. So I read the entire Heroes Reborn and then into Rebirth with the stronger titles. Yeah. So I've read every Avengers issue from the start of Heroes Reborn until now, with the exception of the past couple months because I'm behind. Definitely more than I have. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, once I decided to do this podcast, I'm behind reading everything but Daredevil. So (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I assume then you, you were picking these up off the shelves? Oh, yeah. I was buying these as they came out. In fact, I think depending when they came out, I think I was actually working at a comic store at the time. So 
I was wasn't even picking them up off the shelf. I was taking them out of the box before I even put them on the shelf and went, "This is mine. This is mine. This is mine." Okay, that's a nice way to get it. Yeah, nothing of mine sold out. Yeah, I read it for the first time in that way, and like I said, as it comes to the the significance, I think what this really did was first of all give us what I consider to be the definitive version of Kang. Yeah. If I'm going to see another Kang story, I want this to be the Kang I'm reading, just because Bushiak has it nailed. Yeah. Also, I think this is the only time I've seen, I can remember seeing Kang without the mask. We actually see what Kang looks like. Yeah. I mean, not that there's anything special, but still, we just see it. Yeah. And it, what it confirmed for me there we, is the first time we saw him in the Kang persona, because there was a future in which he is Immortus as well. Well, yeah, there's that. And that's where Marcus comes in. Because when Marcus was first introduced in a story that's, that's a powder keg. Oh, Avengers 200? Or 198.9, maybe, but around, it's, I know it's one of those two. I'd forget the specific numbers, but when I was doing my read-through on the GitCorp DVD ROMs after catching up, I went back to the Avengers and read from issue one through, and I'm up to about 1981. But the original Marcus story, he had a relationship with Carol Danvers, and there's, it's a story that was destroyed by one, one caption, but that just, that's a can of worms. Just Google Carol Danvers and Marcus, and you'll find it. Yeah, yeah, I know Claremont didn't like that one very much, no. speaking of him again, which is why he wrote Avengers Annual Avengers Annual 10, which kind of was his way of yelling about it. <laughs> yep, and that absolutely needed to happen. If anything, it needed to happen sooner. So, yeah, that like I said, that's a powder keg that I mention it here mainly because... He's a main character in this book. It in this one, he I mean. is, and it's, it creates a very interesting dynamic because this is a slightly different version of Marcus than what we saw there. So it's a lot of the same preferences and a lot of the same drives, a lot of the same ideals, but he wasn't actually the Marcus that essentially brainwashed Carol Danvers and removed her free will to make her fall in love with him yeah. and carry himself as her child. Yeah. Uh, weird. Yeah. It was messed up. And that's, I say it's one caption that destroyed it because there's really one caption that says, and you weren't falling in love with me, so I use my abilities to make that happen. Yeah. If not for that caption the story could be salvaged. And Claremont tried to do what he could. I like this because this is someone who has committed what is debatably the worst kind of assault you can commit to a human being. And Carol is face to face with him. Yeah. And Marcus is, you know, he is definitely falling for her. Oh, this version of Marcus, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, he is, which kind of makes sense. I guess it's almost, uh, it makes sense. The one did, so why not the other? I mean, same person. It's the same thing with Vision and uh, Wonder Man, both falling for Scarlet Witch. Yeah. Because it's the same mind. It is. And her reaction is very natural, like with the, oh my God, it's Marcus, keep the hell away from me. Yeah. And it's, she kind of softened it a little bit when he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. That wasn't me. He's like, Which it wasn't, to be fair. Yeah. He, he was totally right about that. But at the same time, Carol's emotional gut reaction isn't going to change when someone reminds her that strongly of the guy that there was before. So that's Busiek used that piece of the history very well here. Yeah, well, he liked he definitely liked using Carol Danvers in this form of Avengers a lot and trying to bring her back to some to some prominence that she had lost over the years. Yeah, yeah, because that's one thing. Making her a star jammer, it was a nice step for her. But they don't get used much, so she went to becoming a supporting character, a side character. Yeah, as binary and bringing her back as Warbird, he did a lot with her in this run. And I think in terms of the the continuity, not only does continuity and form the plot structure and, and the story that Bushek is telling, but he tends to plan and he had a lot of threads going throughout his entire run. 
Yeah, and a lot of things get used, a lot of things get wrapped up in this run, and or in this story, I should say. And there's also a lot of stuff ha- being brought in and happening in this story from around the Marvel Universe. Deviants, uh, the Presence in Starlight. Yeah, who are also used quite nicely. He brought in Vance Astrovic as Justice and Firestar and made them Avengers, which makes the New Warrior fan and me just cheer. Oh, yeah. I mean, that happened earlier in the run, but yeah, they're, and they're definitely a part of this story. He actually, from reading the story, there's a nice grouping of Avengers, and he doesn't use everybody, but he mixes enough of them back and forth for what mission they're doing that we still see a lot of them, and it feels like they're all there, even though you don't see them all. Like, Black Panther never shows up in the in the story at all that I, I mean, unless he, there was a cameo I missed. Never, I didn't see him. Yeah, in the second issue, when Kang is showing all the futures and possible realities that he has conquered, one version of Black Panther shows up in one panel. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, and I think actually going back to before, I think that's a version of Black Panther you'll see in Avengers Forever, from what I remember. Yeah, and there's there's a version of Daredevil in there who's again one panel, and it kind of bugs me that he's unconscious. I love Daredevil. Yeah, but yeah, like uh, Hercules and She-Hulk really don't get you don't really see them until like the last issue or two. Like, there's a lot of Avengers you don't really see much of, but they use several of them, both main ones and the minor ones, enough that it feels like you have a whole team there. Yeah, he will say. You, you know which line every active Avenger is fighting on, but some of these battle lines just don't have a huge impact in the final outcome of the story. Yeah, so they don't need to be shown. You just know where they are. Yeah. She-Hulk and Hercules, they're fighting in France. Done. That's their story. For the most part. And then, you know, when the battle's over, they seem to be heading for Hanky Panky. Yeah. They get a little bit of them flirting at the, uh, during the party at the end. Yeah. Which is a nice twist, so... And he, like I said, he used, a, I mean, several of the main ones. You got Cap, you got Scarlet Witch, Wonder Man, Iron Man, Thor, but you also, Silverclaw, Firebird, Jack of Hearts, Stingray. Mm-hmm. Those are not char- Avengers that get used a lot. I mean, I think this is the most Stingray has been used as an Avenger. Probably since ever. his introduction, yeah. <laughs> or since. I think his first story arc where it's, all oh, this stuff is happening underwater, and check out how cool Stingray is underwater. Then all the other appearances is like, how do we justify getting him underwater? He's like Aquaman, but not as cool. Yeah, but they used him. He used him well here. He's a scientist. Great. You go here with Hank Pym in The Black Knight. You're doing all our science. And Iron Man and Tony Stark, you're doing all our science stuff. Yeah, he becomes part of the brain trust, which is just a beautiful way to use him. Yeah. Like I said, it was a good use. I mean, yeah, Black Knight's in several issues, but he doesn't fight. We really don't see him fight anybody, I think. He is just used for scientific purposes. Yeah, maybe early on he was part of one minor skirmish. I think he might have been introduced wrapping up some small thing. Yeah. Right. He's it's like he's on a mission as an active Avenger, and then when everything comes down, they even make a point of saying, Yeah, we didn't call Iron Man, we called Tony Stark. And there's yeah. part way through the story, Tony's like, I wish I could be out there, and Cap's like, you know what? Right now we need Tony Stark's brain more than Iron Man's repulsors. You are where you are most useful to the world. Yeah, I mean Iron Man as Iron Man, he shows up he's in the beginning, like the first few issues, and then he's not Iron Man at all again until like the last two or three. Yeah. It's all Tony Stark when we see him. Yeah, which, it, again, it's great, because we have these big brains, but it's not just, oh, here, let me put this doohickey together, because we've got two pages left, and we need to fix this problem. <laughs> i got to finish this issue. we got to do something. Yeah. Get this over with. You know, we get the idea that here's a long-term plan, and it's a long shot, but it's not so long that it's not going to work. It's just, we know we got the tech working if we understand Kang's tech, and if we understand the Master of the World's tech. And that's something else Bujiek is doing. Master of the World became... A pretty significant player for a few issues here. Oh, yeah. And he was really just, what, Alpha Flight Yep. beforehand. Yeah, he was one of the Alpha Flight opponents that a lot of people hadn't heard of. So 
There are people online who are like, oh, hey, yeah, that's Master of the World. And it's, there, there are people who legitimately thought Master of the World was a Kurt Busiek creation for this story arc and were mad that he killed him off that quickly. Yeah, like, what? You just made this guy up and then killed him? It's like, no, 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 that was John Byrne made him up, not me. <laughs> yeah, it's if you check the dialogue, there is a point where they say, well, according to Alpha Flight's files, this is what he's about. Yeah. So he does do the name drop, but it's, it's nice because you get in the era where Joe Quesada's editor-in-chief he doesn't like those little footnote captions saying, see Alpha Flight number seven, or whatever issue he happened whatever to be in. Right. Instead, they just do the name drop. But according to Alpha Flight's files, which tells readers going, oh, that's where I could find out more about this guy. It's somewhere in Alpha Flight. And in the post-Google years, let me find out where that is. Google, Master of the World, Alpha Flight. It's that issue. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, nowadays, yeah, it should be easy as hell to find anybody. Yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of people who heard me go, Firebird? Yep. Who? Yeah, and that's something Busiek looked at it. He's not... It's like he built the team saying, well, you know, these are the big players, and they deserve to be. But it's like he could put himself in that world as the tactician and not say, who's who sells the most books? Who am I going to put in here? It's, who's got an interesting power set? Like Firebird, as you said, she seems relatively minor and isn't used that much. But her immortality makes for a beautiful perspective that works so well with what he does with Thor's character in this story. Exactly, because he needed a more, another mortal character to work with Thor on that, and Hercules would not work for that purpose. And I can't really think of another Avenger at the time who was immortal. Yeah, exactly. There have been cases where Ben Grimm has long lived. When you go into the future, Ben Grimm is often still there because of his transformation. Mm -hmm. But I don't know of a case in current continuity where that seems to be common knowledge. Yeah, and even though he had been an Avenger, he really wasn't using any of the FF as Avengers. Yeah, not so much in this story. Although they still appear, so technically, you know, that counts. We also get a nice one-panel appearance of future Avengers Wolverine and Spider-Man. <laughs> yep. And, as we said, the one-panel of future Avenger Daredevil. That's right. Well, everyone's an Avenger now, I think. Yeah. Well, that was one. Yeah, when Wade took over the title, Bendis is like, finally, it makes sense with that take. Daredevil's on the team. <laughs> he was originally going to make Daredevil Ronin, and he realized, you know what? For Daredevil's headspace, he's not going to be a team player right now. Oh, that's why we got Maya? That's why we got Maya as uh, Echo coming in as the first Ronin. Yeah, and then Clint. Yeah, Clint Barton was the second one, and then uh, Eric Brooks, a.k.a. Blade, was the third in The Mighty Avengers by Al Ewing, which is a run I highly recommend. Yeah, so going through the rest, that's... I mean, the broad plot synopsis, as we said, is Kang shows up with a very good plan, and a lot of things come to a head. So one of the things that had been running through Kurt Busiek's run, essentially from the get-go, if it wasn't introduced in issue one, it was darn close to it, is the triune understanding which a lot of people consider to be a cult. Some look at it more as a, a perfectly valid religion. But it's an organization with power that actually manages to get one of their members' superpowers, and Triathlon, that member of the Triune Understanding, joins the Avengers, which was causing some tension because not all of the Avengers trusted the Triune Understanding. Yeah, it wasn't Triathlon so much himself. It was the organization he was a member of. Either for the, like you said, they thought, some people thought it was a cult, but also they had a... Uh... Did they have, like, Avengers frequencies and other, like, information that they shouldn't have? Yeah, there was clearly something going on. This story arc reveals what it is, where we essentially learn that there were corrupt elements within the understanding, but it wasn't the entire organization. Yeah, it was like the leader and then one or two other higher-ups were bad, and the rest of the group just kind of went along with what they thought it was. Yeah, yeah at first it appears as though their intentions are pure. Like, when he says, I'm out there to save the world, he's right. There was a threat coming. And he had the technology and the techniques to stop this threat to the entire planet. But he did it because he felt, well, once he did that, an appropriate reward would be to be given control of the planet. 
Yeah, he kind of was going to save the world in a way Doom would save the world, in which Doom feels, well, yeah, I should be in charge, but also Doom be like, hey, look, I'm saving the whole world. If my way of saving the world happens to kill 40% of you, I'm saving the other 60. What's the problem? And that's like this guy's version was because he didn't, he was, didn't they have a spaceship that was being powered by the belief of his followers and their life force and it would have killed them potentially. Yep. And even when they were launching, after he said that, yeah, it's not going to hurt anyone there in the end, like, don't you see what's happening? He's like, yep. And we've got medical teams standing by to do what they can. Most will make it and most will recover. Most. Yeah. That's the key term. Which really blows triathlon away because he's going, whoa, 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 what? Who have I been following? What are you doing? Yeah, he wasn't happy. And he wasn't actually the only one who was a member of that, wasn't there? Their liaison, the Avengers um, government liaison, Dwayne Fremont. He was also a member of the Triune Understanding. He was. And he was actually one of the casualties because, as we mentioned, Kang laid out rules for combat. One of them was you do not attack my home base, which is out here in space. When the Avengers attack that base, I believe it was uh, Damocles base. Yes, because it looks like a, it looks like a giant, it's a spaceship that looks like a giant sword, which makes you think Kang just kept going further in time until like, can you make a spaceship look like my sword for me? No, that wouldn't work. It won't fit. We can't design. Okay, another couple hundred years. Can you make a spaceship that looks like a sword? Yes. All right, good. You're hired. <laughs> He's like a five-year-old in some ways. He was, but when his ship gets attacked, his retaliation, destroy Washington, D.C. from orbit. And that's the issue that happened to hit the Nuff Said month. It was issue 49, and during this run, Bill Jameis, the publisher, put out a challenge to his writers to say, write silent issues. They weren't Marvel's first silent issues. There have been three issues of G.I. Joe, which were some of the most respected issues of G.I. Joe, but yeah, they did it here. That's right. That was the enough said month, yeah, where every issue was silent. Yeah. So that's in Amazing Spider-Man. That's how we had May dealing with the fact that Peter was Spider-Man. Oh, yeah, that's right. I like that one. We had a very interesting one over in Exiles. Like, there's a lot of good stuff that came out of that month. And this one, it works because that's the month where he retaliates and wipes Washington, D.C. off the map, killing virtually everyone there. Yeah, some people were able to get out, but yeah, the majority of people who live in D.C. were all dead. Yeah, I mean, they make a point of saying we got the president to safety, but most of the rest of the government is gone. Millions of people have just died. And one of the things I like about the story arc is there's no magic reset button. At the end of the story, millions of people are still dead. Yeah, in fact, the last issue of the story, there is a, the last issue or two, they show there's a big uh, memorial there for those people. And in fact, the last issue is Iron Man, Wasp, and Thor, I think, paying their respects for uh, Dwayne. Yeah, that's that's how the story ends. Because he died there. So, And I thought that was a nice touch, because actually, in reading the issues, I almost forgot about him there. So it was a nice little touch to remember that, you know, to make, to put a personal face on the uh, the deaths of those millions of people, all those people there. Because I do remember reading the character both in this this story and also earlier issues when I've been reading Avengers of this run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a very well-developed character. Um, and killing him gave Jeff Johns a beautiful opening for Del Rusk, but that story is not yeah. part of this. Well, of course they had to kill him. He was the one that didn't hate them. Yeah. He wasn't Henry Peter Gyrinch. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't Val Cooper, and he wasn't... <laughs> but <laughs> Who would be the next one on the list? She's the next closest to being nice. Yeah. So that's... Not always. Not always, but they... They did a, a very good job with this. And like I said, it stuck. Those millions died, which had an impact on the characters. It had an impact on the world. Not quite the same impact as Stamfield, but we'll talk about that in 56 weeks. Oh, yeah, Civil War. Yeah, but they can count. That would be considered different. That was an act of war. Yeah. I mean, this one, not Stamfield. Yeah, this one. Well, we'll get to my thoughts on Stamfield in 56 weeks. 
but this one it, it is definitely an act of war and you could see people you know accusing the avengers of causing it by attacking damocles base but given that the other option is yeah this planet is being invaded there's not many people who are going to say oh we know where the guy's home base is we think we can take him down let's go take him down yeah, it wasn't just them anyway. They were with the mil- they were working with the military. I mean, in fact, that's one of the points late- made later on is that they were this was actually they considered this war not just another thing. So when Carol kills the master, that that doesn't take care of the same repercussions it would have, I think, if she just killed him because the Avengers just faced the master of the world. She faced him as an enemy combatant in war, and the Cap says they were working with the military. This was a military action. It was justifiable killing him. Yeah, which is nice because that's. Cap is often a character who's treated as we will never kill, which doesn't totally mesh with his history as a super soldier. No, or, yeah, as a person fighting in a war, or even post-war. Yeah, I mean, he's he signed up for World War II, and it's, like they said in the movie, which sums it up beautifully, I don't want to kill, I just don't like bullies. Yeah. Right. And stopping the Nazis was more important than not killing. And we see some of that attitude here. Yeah, which is what I prefer. I, I have no problem with Cap not trying to kill. I don't want him to be the Punisher. I don't want him to just go first first instinct, let's just kill these people. But I'm okay with him being okay with it if it's what's necessary. You've got a soldier, and what the attitude I like from every soldier I've talked to, killing is not an activity they enjoy. It is treated as a last resort. Right. And that's what we see from Cap. He says, like, it, it's not the preferred option, but at that moment in time, it was the best option. Exactly. So... So that's probably why also, like we said, there's the difference between Stanfield and Washington, D.C., because this was very different. This wasn't just a bunch of superheroes running in and attacking some guys and, oh, they blew up. Yeah, but as I said, I've definitely got things to say about that in 56 weeks' time. Oh, that should be interesting. <laughs> so a little preview, folks, <laughs> or a little teaser, I should say. Yep, that one is, uh, it could be a long episode, because that's a mixed <laughs> bag. In any event, so this, the impact that this really had on the industry and on the comics line I mean, there, there are some things here that, that had a lasting impact. Part of it was establishing Triathlon as a legitimate character, who would later show up as a big part of Avengers Academy. Uh, particularly, and uh, Agents of Atlas. Yep. Triathlon was a big part during the Secret Invasion in Avengers Academy, which was a really nice touch. Because he's closely tied to the 3D Man, who also huh. shows up in here, created by Roy Thomas in the 1970s in a story set in the 1950s of the Marvel Universe. Oh, so he's not a 50s character. I thought he was. I guess I didn't realize. Yeah, his first appearance was not in the 50s. They just said it in the 50s. So, yeah, in terms of the continuity, it really brought in triathlon. And Jack of Hearts. Yeah, Jack of Hearts became a member of the team, which lasted for most of another story arc. Uh, a little longer, wasn't he there until... Uh, oh, I guess he left for a little while, that's right. But he did, because I know he died in uh, Disassembled. Yeah, so he was there for, I think, Jeff John's first story arc, and then came back for Disassembled. And um, Silverclaw, I'm assuming she probably vanished afterwards, shortly. I think largely, yeah. I can't think of any other appearances of Silverclaw. But this did bring the New Warriors back to a degree. So after this, Justice and Firestar did start showing up in other titles, although they were left out of reality checks. So I think their rise to prominence here is the reason they decided to not have them on the New Warriors team at the start of Civil War. Which is good for them. Which stemmed from that six-issue reality check miniseries where they figured, well, if this is going to be the new status quo of the New Warriors launching that, we should establish that status quo. Yeah. And it makes sense, actually, then, because if you're showing them as Avengers, you at least want to show that they have some ability. And considering what the, how they kind of portrayed the New Warriors then, as, especially with Civil War, wouldn't have fit. Yeah. It, it wouldn't have made sense to have those guys on the team after what Bushiek did the, with them here. 
Yeah, because he had them going that they were part of the that's right. They were part of the Triune uh, subplot going on where they were actually undercover for a while. They were, which was nice because they were sent undercover before the storyline started by Tony Stark. And then later, the Avengers as a whole decided to put someone in that organization, but they made it Division, so it's totally above board, where he's just tried to join to learn about them. Yeah, they just sent him in as Division. It's like, yep, I'm here. Yep, and it's he's here saying, I'm here to learn about you, which is totally true. I'm curious. Yep, Triathlon brings him in to show him around, and Jonathan Lamont, who ran the Triune, says, well, yeah, we're fully aware of that, even with the spies. And he just you know, called on Justice and Firestar saying, you know what? <laughs> You're going to be useful here, so come on. Yeah, I love that. There were a lot of good scenes in that, in this run. Like I said, that part was good. The part where the government decides to use the Sentinels. And the Avengers are like, no, this is a bad idea. Sentinels always, always are a bad idea. Doesn't matter what end of the Sentinel business you're on, it's always a bad idea. Government's like, no, 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 no. Sentinels are great. Send Sentinels up against Kang. And Kang goes, oh, yeah, I went back in time at some point, and I was responsible for most robotics and computing that you have. And I put a virus, by the way, in there. So the Sentinels are all mine. And, like, just yep. hits a button, and all the Sentinels just turn around and start blasting <laughs> blasting us. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you can really tell Kurt Busiek is a diehard fan. I mean, there are some people who come in and write. I mean, look at Vince Gilligan, or Gilligan. I forget how exactly it's pronounced. He was one of the writers on the X-Files before he created Breaking Bad. And he wrote a lot of the favorite episodes of the X-Files. And people ask him, you know, why are you such a great writer? And his response was, because I don't like Mulder and Scully. I like putting them through the ringer. I like doing this crap to them. Because I don't like them. <laughs> this you can tell Kurt Busiek honestly loves these characters. And he puts them through the ringer. Because it'll be so much fun to see all this crap getting thrown at them. And see the Avenger go, yeah, okay, my turn. And just dish it right back. Oh, yeah, because he gets capped that awesome moment at the end where he uh, takes on Kang. Not the, not the last time, but when they're in space. Yeah, actually both of them. There's one where oh, there's... Yeah. You know, giant simulations of both Cap and Kang, who are sort of fighting as holograms. But they're somehow able to hit each other. Yeah, so they could feel it's like a hard light hologram with positive feedback. And Kang is going, you know, he's adapting this faster than I expected. He really is that good. And then they're down on the earth, and Cap is ready to fight Kang one-on-one in person, in real life. And Kang is saying, hey, you know, I've got centuries of training on you. I know every form of combat that's ever been, including the ones that haven't been invented in your time. You're good, but I'm better. And they're going in and Thor starts redirecting the Avengers and saying, you know, don't help Cap. And they're going, what, don't you like Cap? He's like, no, no, no. This isn't an emotional thing. This isn't about how this is a personal fight for Cap. This is Cap's fight because Cap is all that's needed. Our time yeah. is better spelt cleaning up the mess after everything that's happened. You go save people there. You go save people there. Cap's got this. Put the fires out. We don't need anyone else to deal with this. This is enough. He's got, and he takes them out like two pages. And speaking of that, they actually almost had another depending on which way he decided to end it, if he had changed his mind slightly, probably, the, the uh, legacy could have been the death of Kang. Because Kang, at the end, lost and was willing to go to jail. And he's like, I'm going to be executed. Like, I did my great battle. I did I did everything I could. They proved better. I will die with honor. And my son will live on as me. And actually, I was thinking about it earlier. They could have done that. And you could have just had Marcus, instead of being struck out Centurion, wearing his father's honor to honor him. And you don't really have to mention afterwards, you know, he doesn't have to, next time Kang appears, he doesn't have to take off the mask and go, I'm really Marcus, I'm not really Kang, and put the mask back on. So you could have still had Kang, but killed him. Because would you ever know if it was a Kang from the past or Marcus, if he doesn't say? You could have, with Marcus's mindset that we've seen here. Because Marcus is the one that says, well, let's just regroup and come back in a few seconds. So we're strong and we're and they're weak. Or let's come back an hour before this fight started. 
So it would have completely changed Kang's tactics. And it would have been one of those cases where... Oh, yeah, because Kang didn't tell him not to do that until afterwards. Yeah, so if Barkas showed up as the attack in issue 80, issue 81 would have been him showing up just before that attack and trying again. And issue 82 would have been showing up before the second run and trying again, and it would have been every issue until either Kang wins or the Avengers kill him. Yeah, on the other hand, though, of course, Marcus didn't say that really until that issue when he goes to rescue Kang. So if we didn't, if he didn't use that, then we didn't have that. If we didn't put that part in, then he wouldn't have that characterization of Marcus. You could have just went with then Marcus as Kang doing the same thing Kang would have done. Well, it was close to that, but I thought it was before Kang got captured because it's Marcus and Kang, and that's when Kang was saying, "No time is our canvas; it's not our weapon." That's right. Okay, you're right. That's when they're that's when they're evacuating Damocles when it's, the ship's destroyed. Yeah, it's shortly before the holographic battle, I believe. Yeah, not after. So it wouldn't have taken much work if they want if he wanted to do that. I mean, he obviously did a different ending in mind. Yeah, and it it was nice because we get Kang out of there, and then we realize, yeah, he had these goals, and Marcus didn't live up to his satisfaction. So we find out not only is there two versions of Marcus, there's the one that essentially raped Carol Danvers, and this one, but no, he takes him into a room where there's dozens, if not hundreds, of Marcus Kangs cryogenically frozen, and he's ready to bring the next one out. I think they mention in the issue, it's like Marcus number 24 or 25. Yeah, they, they did give him a number. Roman numerals with at least a couple of X's in there. Yeah. So I think it was in the 20s or 30s. But yeah, because I actually, because he did betray Kang a little bit by helping Warbird Carol fight the Master. Because that was actually one of the things that turned the tide is that the Avengers were able to take control of the Master's equipment. And it was able to uh, penetrate Kang's shields and fight him. Without that, they actually wouldn't have won, possibly wouldn't have won. And he knew Marcus lied when he said, oh, I have no idea how they got this, you know, how they took over. Mm-hmm. He let him, you know, he, he even said he gave him time to come clean. And then when Kang's imprisoned, he's like, he's made mistakes, but he's going to learn from them. And hey, what great warrior did, you know, King, Conqueror King did not betray his father. So he was OK. If, Kang, if Marcus left him, Kang was content to leave it. But because he brought him back, he's like, OK, I'm back to being Kang again. Kang doesn't de- take traitors, sorry, mm-hmm. and just stabs him. Yeah, which again, it's a nice version of Kang because it's up to this point, like he's honorable for his own twisted sense of honor. He is still cutthroat. He will kill in the millions. He will kill those close to him. And in the case of Marcus, it just means, well, I'll try again and thought another son and try to teach him better next time. Yeah, but like I said, but he was willing to let him stay. If Marcus let him stay in prison, he was like, all right, good for you. I would actually look forward. To to somebody writing a Kang story where he thaws out two Marcuses at the same time to see what competition does for them. Oh, that would be cool. Marcus and Marcus. But that's not a story anyone has written. So. Far as we know, at least. If it has, I don't know that it's been published. There might be fanfic out there somewhere. Um, I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking of maybe ones I didn't realize. Yeah, it's it's possible. I haven't run into any other instances of Marcus in my database because they're searchable by character, but I haven't cataloged every issue yet. Have we seen this Scarlet? Any so we have we seen any version of him since Scarlet Centurion? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Okay. He does appear in Uncanny Avengers issue 12 by Remender and Cassidy. So Remender, who inked some of these issues, brought him back for the recent run of Uncanny Avengers, uh, released on September 25, 2013, cover dated November 2013. That led into Axis. Huh. All right. I haven't read those. I haven't read that run. So. Nor have I. But that's everything in my database has, it's got this story arc, it's got Squadron Supreme, and it's got that issue. And an official handbook to the Marvel Universe, but that's kind of a given. Yeah, that's right, because Scarlet Centurion was mainly, a uh, beforehand was mainly used as a Squadron Supreme villain. I forget if he was, he was their version of Kang, or he was Kang, but the way he appeared in their universe. 
I forget which one. Well, he is listed as the Scarlet Centurion in Squadron Supreme Number One by Grinwald and Bob Hall. So yeah, Bushiek knows his continuity. Well, yeah. Let's see. Anything else in here you want to talk about uh, from this run? I think for him, we could probably move on to the the deeper meanings. See if there's any morals, messages, or meanings that that we have in this. Is there anything that it's teaching us? Don't trust Sentinels. Yeah. Yeah, never trust the Sentinels. They're never a good idea. There is something with, I think, whether or not you trust appearances or your your first instincts, because a lot of times the f- first appearances can be deceiving. We get some of that with the way Carol Danvers relates to Marcus, right? She is completely understandably judging Marcus based on past experiences with an incredibly similar person. With the same name. Yeah. Yeah. They're as close as you can get to the same person and not actually be the same person. Like closer than twins, because they are alternate versions of the same person. Yeah, it's basically like a clone. Yeah, and it's the same when they finally do the reveal about the triune understanding and what's going on there, right? There's people who are judging it from the outside without all the facts. There didn't seem to be anyone who said, well, there might be a mix of corrupt elements and clear. It was either one side or the other. Yeah, and we don't see a lot of that debate before the story arc because things are happening, so that's more of a culmination. When it's important, the dialogue says which side you're on, but had you read the whole run, there's not a lot of people who say, you know, yeah, it's it's somewhere in the gray area. There's people who say, no, they're doing good. And some people are saying, no, there's something totally shady there. The whole thing is corrupt. And here we learn that the corruption runs high enough that it is problematic for the entire organization, but it is just a select few which are corrupt. The Thor storyline, what comes out of that about what's important, which is what he says at the end, you know, what he learns. Because during the story, Thor is conceived. Was it? Uh, it's the presence when they fight the presence and Cap, he thinks Captain America's killed and he loses it. He is upset. And afterwards, he's upset himself for being upset because he's like, you're all mortal. And I thought I had gotten used to the fact that, yes, it's an animal group to be with, but you're all going to die one day. And I don't I'm not supposed to be too attached because mm. you're all going to die in 40, 50 years tops. I'm going to be around for a couple, you know, forever. And so he thought about once this is all over and once this battle's over, I might leave. And Firebird is planning on spends most of her time trying, which is the whole reason of her, I think, being in this story is to be an immortal who's trying to give him another perspective. And he gets at the end. It's not how short, you know, what the, how long the life is. But the fact is, you know, because of that, these ones matter. You know, it matters more my bonds with you because I only get that for so long. Mm-hmm. So I should treasure while I have with it because it's I can't I won't get it again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that I think comes in with the brain trust, like we're talking about with your Stingrays, your Hank Pims, your Black Knights, your, you know, Tony Stark. It's not about grabbing the limelight. It's about doing the greatest good. And while they had unquestionably a pivotal role in the Avengers winning in this storyline, the Avengers won because those guys were working behind the scenes and not on the front lines. So it wasn't about getting out there and grabbing the glory. It's about getting the job done as a team. Yeah, because it was them and the Wasp as the leader, basically, for the most part of the whole team. And again, it's not that she's not the character that's the flashiest. She's not always the character that's the biggest seller, but she was the one that was the best equipped to lead all of them. Yeah, which also means she was nowhere near the front lines. She was parked in front of a bunch of monitors coordinating multiple international teams. Yeah, because this wasn't just, like we said, this was a war. This wasn't just, hey, we're fighting this one guy, in which case, you know, you're there fighting the one guy. She was dealing with, yeah, like we said, five different teams of Avengers and 20 single ones all over the world and coordinating with military leaders, deviant leaders, obviously, because she brings them in at the end to fight Atlanteans. Yeah, political leaders. That's one of the things that comes out when they say most of Washington was destroyed, but the president has been secured safely. We learn a few issues later, the Avengers are the ones protecting the president of the United States. He's in their 
little cubby hole yeah. in their bunker, which I think may also have significance. I think this is the first time in the history of comics that I've read where George W. Bush was treated as a character worth saving. <laughs> if there's no other deeper meanings that we've got here. Yeah, I think it's like I think of. Okay. All right, so from there, we move on to why we think it landed at this point in the countdown. Some things show up because they're a major piece of continuity. Some things show up because they seem to have a very clear message to get across. And some things go, show up just because they're very entertaining stories. And I think that's where this one shows up. It goes in. It's a very good story. I mean, it's 15 issues. And when I was reading it, I really didn't feel like, oh, more Kang. Are we done yet? Are they still at war? Because for one thing, he brings in different elements. They fight, you know, they deal with the triune understanding. There's an issue or two of dealing with the presence in Starlight. They have to fight the deviants. So he kind of mixes a few other things in. So it doesn't always feel like the same Kang War. Oh, and the Master. So it doesn't always feel like the same Kang War over and over and over again. So it didn't get repetitive for me or boring. Yeah, it, it really, you know, it started out with, why are you attacking now? And Kang said, well, it's because right now they've got a whole lot to deal with and their forces are going to be divided. This is the right time. So Kang shows up when they've got a lot to deal with. And that's part of how you can get a 15-issue story. I mean, I'm not a fan of the, you know, so-called decompressed storytelling. And this does not feel decompressed. It's long, but it doesn't feel like this is a six-issue story because they spent three half issues, you know, sitting around eating coffee and just shooting the breeze. It's definitely a nice balance, I think, between the two either really decompressed, like you said, you know, let's spend five pages, you know, five issues drinking coffee. And the really compressed way from before sometimes where a half you would have like a panel that would show, you know, like, oh, and then they fought these guys over here and beat them. And you just get one panel of it. Yeah. And this is beyond the, the 60s where a lot of characters revealed in one pretty darned explicit lacking subtlety speech balloon because they get the entire story into one issue, maybe two if it's selling really well and they're sure that retailers will carry both issues. Yeah. No, this is one where they are taking their time to tell the story and to tell it well. And it really shows. And like I think another uh, thing is, like I said before, there's a nice grouping of Avengers. You have a lot for primage everybody. It's not just one team of seven. You have a lot of Avengers, a lot of Avengers for whoever is your favorite for the most part are there. I mean, like we said, Captain America, Thor, Vision, Scarlet Witch are big players, but triathlon, st- you so like the people who are fans of like, oh, you know, when you use the minor ones, triathlon, Stingray. Yeah, I think pretty much everyone but Doctor Druid has a moment here. Yeah, I think he's dead by then though. Ah, well, who does that stop in comics? Yeah, I think it was only the dead people didn't show up. So Druid, Swordsman, Yellow Jacket. Yeah, we didn't get a lot of Beast or... So if, if you can definitely pick out Avengers that didn't show up, but you got to go digging for them. Yeah, and most of the ones actually who were still around who didn't show up were on active in other teams. Like we said, uh, the human... Well, not Human Torch, he never was. But the thing, Invisible Woman and Mr. Fantastic, we see what happened to the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Beast was one of the X-Men, so at least... You know, he was, do- you know, he was busy there. It's not like he wasn't doing anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone who doesn't show up, it wouldn't take a lot of research to find a very plausible excuse for why they're busy. I mean, like I said, Black Panther didn't show up, but you could just assume Black Panther was busy probably, you know, fighting, you know, an army around Wakanda constantly. Yeah. When this was going on, Black Panther was being written by Chris Priest. So, <sighs> so many of his Avengers were focused right in Wakanda. Yeah. Oh, that's a great run. Or Jim Owsley, if you want to use his birth name. I'll call him Priest. That's what he wants. Found some meanings and morals that are in here, but at no time are they so prominent that it feels preachy, and it doesn't feel like it's a message book. No. It's more just Kurt Busiek has a certain set of ethics and morality, 
And he's putting characters in situations where they have to question their ethics and morality and their mindset, which makes her very interesting stories. And things just happen to come out. So I don't think his goal was make you walk away thinking like this. He thinks these different characters would think this way, and he puts them all in their perspectives. True, yeah, he does it. Because even at the end of, near the end with the Triune, when they take control of that evil pyramid thing that was attacking Earth, when Cap and his team take control of that, and it's powered by the souls of aliens that it had defeated before. And Triathlon says to Cap, yeah, we're using this to fight Kang, but should we? You know, even though we're in the middle of war, should we be using these other people's suffering because it helps us? We don't get too much of it because it's Cap starting to question it. Like we said, Jonathan, what's his last name again? I want to say Fremont, but I know it's... Uh, I think it was Lamont. Yeah, takes just grabs, takes all the power, and you, you know, takes what he can and just dies fighting Kang, but bursts into the shield. So you kind of that gets pushed aside then because of the final battle. But at least, like I said, something like that's brought up. You know, what's the difference between us and them? Yeah, and the nice thing is to have that Jonathan guy in there. So he'd been drawing on these souls. The Avengers had captured him to bring him in for trial, and he is close enough and has enough power to take the responsibility for that decision off the Avengers. They were sitting there going, yeah, should we take this next step? He's going, are you kidding? Save the planet. Here, I'll push the button. Bing. Yeah. And he takes the responsibility off their hands, which is, again, it's it's nice. And it's it's got a lot of subtlety and a lot of complexity in here. But it does have, like I said, it does have the nice moral. Like you said, he has a moral thing. And at least they have that. That was a way of having the moral thing in without having it be an issue. Is, you know, should we, you know, should the Avengers be doing stuff like that? It is because the way this story is written, they couldn't win the day without pushing that button. And then this could be like, you know, Hank Pym, where you get that one defining moment for whichever Avenger pushes that button that they're never really able to recover from, as when Hank Pym hit Jan. Yeah. Right. That's that black mark on that character's record for life. Or even not for life for a long time. I mean, after, what was it, after uh, Galactic Storm, they, I mean, that rift between Iron Man and Cap was long time running for years. Yeah. You know, again, you've got your Civil War, which puts another rift between a lot of characters that lasted for quite some time. Yeah. But even, like I said, with, with Hank Pym, that's so much in the eyes of the fans. For so many people, he is irredeemable. Yes. All right. So, yeah, I think we can agree this made the list of 75 because it's just, it's a very entertaining story that gives you some meat to chew on without beating you over the head with it. Yeah. It's just a damn good story and 15 issues, but doesn't drag, doesn't get boring. Yeah. It culminates the, a very good run. I would say that Bouchiek has one of the strongest runs on the Avengers behind him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's worth reading either on its own or if you decide to go back to number one of this run and then read straight to the end. It has a good, the story arc has a great climatic ending. Yep. And then it even has a nice little issue, you know, epilogue issue to finish it off, a nice little emotional beat. Yeah, Kang is defeated prior to issue 55. I don't want to get into too much details for the people who want to read it and enjoy the spoilers, but yeah, this is something, the storyline is big enough that there's going to be fallout. And it doesn't get squeezed into the last three issues or three pages of the story. No, he gives a he gives it enough room that it you get all the emotional ending as well as the physical ending of the physical battle. You know, they have the actual ending of the battle, but then, like you said, we get the Kang Marcus stuff at the end. You get the Avengers of the Memorial for their liaison Dwayne. You get the you know Thor's realization about his relationship to mortals as an immortal. Like that all. You know, there is a lot of stuff at the end of you know. That's been going on the whole time, so they give you the emotional thing, and it's not just thrown in at the last panel. Like we said, there's a nice fix between the compressed and decompressed. Yeah, even Carol Danvers' court-martial that she requested... Is in there. Yeah, after the, the death of the Master. So I said, I don't want to get into too many specifics for people who who haven't read this yet, because really you should, it's good. There is more than one, is more than one full issue's worth of wrap-up to this. 
because there is that degree of fallout. So it, it's not ignored. It felt a little bit like Babylon 5 when the War of Light and Dark ended in the middle of what was not the last season. <laughs> so when you're watching that and go, wait, huh, what? It, wow, what, what's next? Kind of feels a little bit like that going, you know, when I'm reading it going, I'm on this issue and the story goes up until that issue. Reading it through the first time, that didn't stand out so much because I wasn't reading it knowing in advance which issue was Bushiak's last and which issue the storyline ended on. That's when I started to read the follow and going, okay, he's clearly going to deal with that later. And then the next issue, oh, that's all being dealt with right here, right now. Okay. And then I haven't reread issue 56 to remember what Bushiak's final issue was because it follows the story and then Jeff John starts in 57. Yeah, I don't remember that either. I might have to go back and read that after we finish recording because I just wanted to read just the issues. As did I, which is part of the reason I skipped the annual, because there's stuff going on with Hank Pym, where he actually changes identities again after having some issues. You know, the first couple issues, he's clearly having some medical problems and or psychological problems. And then it's all dealt with in that annual over there, which didn't make the list. So, oh, see, I, whenever I did anything about this Kang story, the annual is always included as part of it. So I read it at the end of it. He's actually a member of a, he, not a member. He's actually sh- active afterwards as Yellowjacket. Yeah. But yeah, in this, if we look at the, the Kang Dynasty as it's listed in the print edition of the Marvel 75 Years Countdown, the issue numbers listed don't, do not include the annual. Okay. Well, I guess it depends. I mean, I looked at, I'm looking at it right now on Wikipedia. We know Wikipedia can never be, is never wrong. It's always accurate. Yeah, it's always. There is a gap in Hank Pym's story. So if you go back and reread this, I would recommend grabbing that 2001 annual because we go from a very troubled Goliath to a totally okay yellow jacket. And we know the annual explains how we got from A to B. And it's pretty early on. I, it's either between 43 and 44 or 44 and 45. So it's very early on in the story. Yeah. Yeah, it is right about that mark. So, And I shouldn't say if you read this. I should say when. Yes. This is one of the ones I can recommend wholeheartedly. Whereas the next time we hear Al join us to discuss one of these stories, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. But we will save that for next time. So Al, why don't you remind people where they can find you? Oh, you can find me at Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Uh, just search that on iTunes or go to resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. And you can also find me on Four Color Fanboys uh, with my friend Brian Zeno. We just talk about comics in general. And um, actually, we also go through favorite runs of different writers we like. Right now, we're covering Warren Ellis and different early runs of his that made him what Warren Ellis that we know. And you can find that at fourcolor.podwits.com. Okay. And for those who want to read along at home, You can join us next week for Amazing Spider-Man issue 129, which some of you would probably know is the first appearance of the Punisher. Ooh. It was reprinted in Marvel Tales 106, Marvel Tales starring Spider-Man 209, Marvel Milestone Edition Amazing Spider-Man number 129, Essential Punisher volume 1, Punisher the official movie adaptation trade paperback, Essential Spider-Man volume 6, Marvel Masterworks The Amazing Spider-Man volume 13, the Git Corp CD and DVD collections, because Spider-Man was collected twice, first time in about 12 CDs before they switched to DVDs. It's also available on Marvel Digital Unlimited and on Comixology. That's it? Yeah, just a few. Only 10 different places. Not counting the back issue bins. Or the first issue if you've been collecting comics for 40 years. So, Al, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. So feel free to rate the show on both iTunes and Stitcher. If you have a friend who'd be interested in listening, pass them along the link. Don't forget to check out the forum on Facebook where we can discuss each issue or each episode as it comes out. Or you can discuss that where they're originally posted on Bureau42.com. Thank you for listening.